Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey there, welcome back to the show. Today we are pausing in Job to spend some time studying what is called Passion Week or Holy Week as we prepare ourselves for Easter, to look at the holy moves of our Savior in the days leading up to His death and resurrection. Truthfully, this transition actually makes quite a bit of sense when we remember this truth we discussed in the last episode. In comparing Job to Christ, the ultimate sufferer, we see God allows Christ to be crucified just as He allowed Satan to take from Job. But just as Jesus identifies and understands our suffering, he also provides an end to it, proclaiming, It is finished. God's glory has a final word here, friends. All the yeses. I am so looking forward to beginning our time together today, because everything Jesus did from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday is called Passion or Holy Week for a reason, my friends. This is the most important, the most sacred week in the history of the world. As we begin, I would encourage all of us to take a moment to pray asking God to help each one of us walk through this Easter week and these familiar scriptures with new eyes and a teachable heart. As I said in our study time together during the Advent season, let's not become so comfortable with scripture that we just pass over those words with an oh yeah, I know this part, I've heard this all before mentality, but instead read it once again to see what God would like to teach us today in this reading. My prayer is that God will open all of our eyes and give us a new way of seeing this story we've possibly heard hundreds of times and that he will give us a renewed sense of wonder as we look closer at the incredible gift of our risen Savior. I know I sure can't wait to get started. But as an important side note before we begin our time, we are going to be covering a lot of ground today, and these stories are found across multiple chapters throughout all four Gospels in the New Testament. So if you want to locate all the recorded events that led up to Jesus' triumphant entry into the city, through his crucifixion, to his resurrection, and beyond— be sure to find all the scripture listings I have for us in today's show notes. Even if you have yet to go locate the show notes I provide for each episode, I would strongly encourage you that this is the episode to start using them. More on all that later, I promise. Okay, with all that said, let's begin our study time together with this excerpt from the Lifeway Easter study, Behold Your King. Passion Week began with Palm Sunday, a day where the people of Jerusalem gathered at the gate to cheer and celebrate but it also began a week of confusing events. We have to remember that the people at this time in history didn't know anything about Easter. They were days away from attending a very different kind of gathering, a gathering that would display a sacrifice for all of our sins. This is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. Of course, we will later see it was not how a king in those times would ever dream of entering the city. Usually the conquering king entered on a mighty stallion, Jesus rode in humbly on a donkey, as was foretold in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, which reads, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I have always wanted to know what it was like to stand among the people that day, watching a man on a donkey enter the streets as if he were a triumphant king. What would I have whispered to the person standing next to me? It would have been like anything I had ever encountered before. I have always been curious about the buzz of the crowd that day. 
Perhaps not everyone was excited. There had to be people who were still filled with doubt. Surely Jesus knew there were some who weakly shouted Hosanna, who would later passionately shout, Crucify. Even so, he still entered the city that day in victorious fashion. Have you ever considered what it would be like to be standing in the crowds that day, or the day of Jesus' crucifixion to soon come? What a thought. A devotional in the She Reads Truth Bible says this about Palm Sunday. Only Jesus knew the gravity of what the crowd was asking when they shouted Hosanna that day. It was a shout of adoration, but it was also a plea, because the word Hosanna literally means, come save us now. And this is exactly what he would do. Only he knows what our hearts truly need as we cry out Hosanna. He knew it then, and he knows it today. Now listen into this real-time summary of sorts I found from She Reads Truth's Lent 2016 study in regards to the events during the Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week. Monday's arrival in the temple was marked by Jesus' living parable of cleansing God's house by overturning tables, and Tuesday's entrance was marked by a direct, verbal confrontation from the religious leadership, the Sanhedrin. They demanded to know who gave Jesus the right to behave as he has in their temple. The Tuesday of Holy Week was filled with drama. This entire confrontation was an attempt to put Jesus in his place by forcing him to yield to the Sanhedrin's authority. But when they tried, they failed. Jesus asked smarter questions and gave clearer answers than they did. When they tried to question his motives, he exposed their hearts. When they attempted to intimidate him by coming to him in numbers, he never showed the slightest sign of backing down. They tried to discredit his ministry, but there were people walking around the temple who, only days earlier, had been blind and lame. Jesus had literally turned the tables on the Sanhedrin the day before, but on Tuesday, he had done it again, only this time with further-reaching implications. When they demanded that he submit to their authority, he exposed them as liars. If they had no integrity, they held no real authority. This forced the religious leaders' hands. If they wanted to contain Jesus' influence among the people, they would have to rely on more than warnings and bravado. They would have to remove him because it was clear that he would not yield. After Jesus ended the confrontation on Tuesday by refusing to regard these leaders as having any authority over him, he elected to spend the rest of the day right there in the temple, his father's house, so that he might teach the people the word of God. Consider for a moment the strength and resolve that standing his ground would have required. But Tuesday afternoon would be the last time Jesus would publicly teach in the temple as a free man. His words on that day would be his closing argument, his manifesto. When Jesus left the temple that Tuesday, the chief priests and scribes sought how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They knew they couldn't take his life from him solely on the strength of charges they meant to bring, not if he defended himself anyway, but he would not. Instead, by his silence, he would offer up his life for a world of blasphemers, traitors, and liars who so desperately needed to be opposed and upset. This was what Jesus had come to do. As he left the temple that Tuesday afternoon, he knew it would happen soon. On the Wednesday before his death, Jesus was still. Though Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of Holy Week were filled with harrowing experiences that seemed to be drawing him ever nearer to his death, on Wednesday, Jesus stayed out of the public eye. On this day, Jesus and his disciples had gone to the home of a man in Bethany known as Simon the leper. Simon belonged to a growing part of the population known not for their accomplishments, but for what was wrong with them. It was a difficult life, but it must also have been strangely liberating since the first thing people learned about Simon was his broken past. Simon lived among the people who did not have to pretend to be what they were not. He was Simon the leper. People could choose his company or reject it, but that was who he was. In Simon's home during their meal together, Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister, came to Jesus with an alabaster flask of perfume. 
She had been saving this perfume worth a year's wages to perform this very act. She began to pour the perfume on Jesus' head and feet, which required breaking open its container. Like popping the cork of a $20,000 bottle of anything, Mary intentionally and deliberately offered Jesus everything she had. By giving her most valuable possession, Mary was expressing that she knew what Jesus was about to give of himself and that it was for her. The disciples reacted like many often do. They considered the value of her perfume and regarded her actions as though she might as well have been burning a year's wages in a bread oven. But they dressed their indignation up in a whole noble auspice of concern for the poor. Think of the poor people who could have benefited from the sale of this perfume. But this was not how her actions hit Jesus. He came to her aid. What Mary is doing is beautiful, he said to them. Appreciate the doctrinal principle here. The perfume could have been sold for a year's wages. But what is perfume for? Is it merely a commodity Mary should have held on to in the event that she needed to cash it in? Is this how God would expect her to regard this valuable resource? Apparently not. Perfume is meant to be poured out, released into the air until it is gone, in order to fill the room with this beautiful and startling aroma. So Mary breaks open the jar and the scent electrifies the senses of everyone present, and Jesus says it is beautiful. Everything in creation testifies to a creator who delights in beauty for beauty's sake. So many things that are beautiful don't need to be, and it was God who elected to make them that way. He opted to make autumn a season saturated with bold, changing color. He didn't have to make the setting sun the spectacle that it is, but he did. Why? One reason must be because beauty pleases him, and another may simply be to arrest people by their senses when they're otherwise just plodding along, heads down, living within the economy of pragmatism. What Mary did that day was beautiful, and Jesus wanted everyone to know it. She was preparing him for burial. There was honor and kindness in her gesture. He returned the honor by saying history would never forget her act of beauty. And we haven't. Now, just to clarify, I also found a bit of confusion in my research in regards to exactly when during Holy Week that Mary's act of anointing Jesus with perfume in preparation of his body for burial actually occurred. Listen to this note in the NLT Life Application Study Bible for Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. Matthew and Mark put this event just before the Last Supper, while John has it just before the triumphal entry. Of the three, John places this event in the most likely chronological order. We must remember that the main purpose of the Gospel writers was to give an accurate record of Jesus' message, not to present the exact chronological account of his life. Matthew and Mark may have chosen to place this event here in contrast to the complete devotion of Mary with the betrayal of Judas, the next event they record in their Gospels. We will take a closer look at the contrast between Mary and Judas's acts here in a bit. In the meantime, though, just to give us a point of reference here as we continue on, listen to this timeline of Jesus's final hours as found in the She Reads Truth Study Bible. Thursday, 6 p.m. Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. 7 p.m. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. 9 p.m. Jesus prays for his disciples, for all believers, and for himself. Friday, at 12 a.m. or midnight, Jesus and his disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane. 3 a.m., Jesus is arrested. 4 a.m., Jesus before Annas and Peter denies Jesus. 6 a.m., Jesus stands trial before Pilate and Herod. 7 a.m., Jesus sentenced to death. 8 a.m., Jesus led away to Calvary. 9 a.m., Jesus crucified. 10 a.m., Jesus mocked while on the cross. 12 p.m. or noon, darkness covers the land. 3 p.m., Jesus gives up his spirit. The earthquake, the curtain is torn, and many dead are raised. 
and 4 p.m., Jesus is taken down from the cross. 5 p.m., Jesus is buried. And 6 p.m., the Sabbath begins. Sabbath in Jewish culture is from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, which helps explain the hurry to remove Jesus' body from the cross and place him in the tomb. It is also the reason why the women were heading to the tomb on Sunday morning in hopes of somehow getting past the stone to prep his body for a proper burial, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, so we'll revisit that in a bit. In her book Woven, Angie Smith says, Here we see that Jesus wanted one last day with a small cluster of men who'd been beside him from the start. To read the fullest version of what Jesus said to his disciples during this Thursday interaction, spend some time in John chapters 13 through 17, which takes you from the touching moment where he knelt down and washed their feet to the fearless moment where he knelt down and prayed for their protection. For their protection, not his own. Because Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, would be right there around the table as they were celebrating Passover. I wonder what Judas was acting like. He must have been avoiding eye contact and trying to remain calm and to calm his racing heart even. These had been his traveling companions for years and the moment was only a few hours away, the moment when he would betray the Son of Man. During this Passover, Christ was foreshadowing what we all know to be true on this side of the resurrection. The bread he tore wasn't just any bread. It represented the tearing of his own flesh, his own body. The wine he poured wasn't just any wine. It represented the pouring out of his blood, his own blood. You'll recognize this moment as being the first observance of what the church now calls communion, or the Lord's Supper. The reason we keep doing it, the Bible says, is to keep remembering, to never forget what Jesus did for us. But don't miss the clinching line that Jesus spoke at the original communion gathering in Luke chapter 22, verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Who, me? Judas piped up. You have said so, Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. And with that, Judas slipped into the night, leaving behind the man he'd eaten meals with, laughed with, slept near, teased, and applauded for three years, the face of a man he'd watched perform miracles and welcomed children into his arms. The thing is, it's easy to just say Judas the traitor without digging another few layers, because they were truly friends. Think about that for a second. Think about the fact that all these men knew each other. They knew whose hair stood straight up in the morning and which ones couldn't be trusted to cook. They knew who snored and who had a hard childhood. They crossed miles in step with one another, always in a pact. Jesus was God, yes, but he was also a man. He was part of a group, and Judas, his confidant, was about to betray him. Before we move on in the events of Good Friday, let's pause for a moment to listen to this devotional excerpt from the Jesus Bible titled, Old Testament Fulfillments, to give us some perspective for what promises are being fulfilled in the days and the happenings of Holy Week. The events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus directly parallel what was prophesied about the Messiah as a suffering servant in the Old Testament. But not only did Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecy, others around Jesus did as well. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 indicates was the equivalent to the price of a slave. Zechariah wrote about this exact price in his messianic foreshadowing found in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, which reads in the NLT. And I said to them, If you like, give me my wages, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter this magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the thirty coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Thirty pieces of silver was not a very large sum of money in that era. And in Matthew, Judas's story provides a stark contrast to the verses preceding his betrayal. While Mary went to the great expense to anoint Jesus with precious oil, 
giving to Jesus what was probably her entire dowry and therefore her entire future, Judas churned against Jesus for a relatively small price. Great is the cost of devotion, but cheap is the price of betrayal. After the description of Judas's betrayal, Matthew transitioned to the preparations of the Passover meal. The Passover was celebrated in remembrance of God freeing his people from Egypt, as found in Numbers chapter 2, verse 2. However, for believers, Jesus completely transformed the way the meal was celebrated. It is now in remembrance of God freeing his people from sin and death through Jesus. In honoring old traditions, Jesus also created new traditions for believers to follow today. During this Passover celebration, Jesus represented the very fulfillment of the Passover's promise of deliverance from sin, ushering in a new covenant to replace the old covenant. This new covenant had been promised in the Old Testament multiple times, and Jesus finally fulfilled it. In addition to Judas and Jesus, Peter and the rest of the disciples also fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. While Peter's denial was blatant against Jesus, it is important to remember that Peter was not the only disciple to avoid being associated with Jesus after his arrest. None of the other disciples had the courage to follow Jesus on that night. They all hid, which Jesus referenced to by quoting Zechariah 13, 7 in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. After Jesus' resurrection, ever the good shepherd, Jesus brought his flock back together, as referenced in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And he will again in the last days. Continuing on, this devotional from the She Reads Truth Study Bible titled Don't Look Away speaks of what we see happening on Good Friday in this way. I don't walk by caskets and I don't go to grave sites. Whenever possible, I prefer to avoid staring death in the face. It's not surprising then that I often steer clear of the passages detailing Jesus' death. I might give them a quick skim a couple times a year, but I never sit still with them for long or meditate on them like I do other parts of the Bible. I can't bear to look too closely, but I need to. We all do. Let's put the rubber gloves aside and refuse to sanitize this part of the story. Would you take a minute and read the account right now? It's found in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56. When I force my eyeballs to take in the full account, I see the gory details I'd rather gloss over. The prophecy about that dreadful day is found in verses 28 through 30. The crucifixion at a place called the skull in verse 33. The humiliating game for his clothes in verse 34. The mocking in verses 35 through 38. The insults in verse 39 the oppressive darkness mentioned in verse 44. This is as gut-wrenching as death gets. I want to look away, don't you? But when we look closely at the narrative, we see a group of people who dared to stay. Luke chapter 23, verse 49 reads, But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. John chapter 19, verse 25, tells us this circle of onlookers included Jesus' mother Mary, his aunt, a family friend, and Mary Magdalene. Some had seen him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Some had seen him drive out demons and heal the sick. All four women had been forever changed. Like mamas who stick close to their babies in the ER, these women dug in their heels and stayed for the darkest moment in history. Jesus was doing a monumental saving work for them on the cross. They did what they could in return. They refused to look away. As Christ followers, we need to circle up at the base of the cross often. When we do, we see the gravity of our sin— Though we're experts at rug-sweeping, justifying, and deflecting blame when it comes to our sin, a hard look at the cross reminds us what serious business it really is. It's horrific and hard and heart-wrenching to watch, but it's a fitting punishment for our rebellion against the loving God who created us. When we gloss over what Jesus endured for us, 
We missed something huge. There was no cost he was unwilling to pay to rescue us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus teaches not to look away. I must confess, every time I watch The Passion of the Christ movie, I find myself looking away at the horror and gore of seeing a representation of what happened to our Savior Jesus. I remember hearing an interview with Mel Gibson, director of the movie, shortly after it released in 2004. I clearly recall him saying that they actually toned down those scenes versus the reality of what happened to our Savior, because there comes a point where we can no longer look upon violence. Oh, Jesus, please teach us all to not look away, to remember. Even more so, help us to see ourselves in the characters of this unfolding Easter story. With that thought in mind, listen to this devotional from She Reads Truth, Because He Lives study titled, Our Savior is Handed Over. I know the events of Holy Week unfolded more than 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there, and yet, as I prepare my heart for Easter morning, I keep bumping into reflections of myself in the text. Here I am in John 18. I am the Jews who escorted Jesus to Pilate. They thought they were righteous because they stayed in the front yard, yet convinced themselves their hands weren't dirty as they handed over an innocent man for the slaughter. How often do I rely on all manners of rules to make me clean while willfully rebelling against a holy God? And by clean, I mean a quote-unquote kind of clean, not a real one. How often is my heart soiled by sin that I ignore because I've stuck to some arbitrary list of do's and don'ts? I am Pilate. I want to wash my hands of the matter of sin and suffering. Don't you? Don't we all? How often do I utter what is truth when the truth is inconvenient to me? The answer, I'm afraid, is all too often. And then look, there I am in Luke 23. I am the crowds, offended by the ways Jesus interrupts the status quo and upends my paradigms. As he strips me of my comfort and convicts me of my obsession with self, my heart becomes indignant. I want to yell, scream, and stomp my feet. I am Herod. I am willing to use Jesus to suit my purposes to elevate my own power. I see myself most clearly, though, in Matthew 27. I am Barabbas. There's no use in trying to deny it. I am a sinner, guilty of violating the holy law of God. Barabbas was a notorious prisoner of the Roman government. Without Christ, I am a prisoner to my sin. I deserve whatever punishment God could hurl at me, but he takes my place instead. Because of him, I walk in undeserved freedom. Friend, I know you are these things too. We all are. We are prone to value rules over righteousness. We are capable of distancing ourselves from inconvenient truth. We are irritated by the ways that following Christ can stir up trouble for us in this world, yet more than okay with using him to elevate ourselves in the eyes of other believers. We are guilty of sin, undeniably so, and are so often imprisoned because of it. And we are as responsible for sending Jesus to the cross as the crowds who yelled, crucify him. But there is none like him. Amen? His grace and mercy transcend time and geography. His actions on Holy Week have the power to save us just as much as they have the power to save the ones who lined the streets to see him punished. Go on. See yourself in the story. Feel the sting of your sin. But let your eyes move quickly to Jesus, who willingly took our place so that we might be a people who walk in undeserved freedom. So the question for us here, friends, is will we take the time to see ourselves in the story and also make the choice not only to not look away from what our Savior did for us on that cross, but to also look deeply into Jesus' eyes full of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Oh, how humbling to remember that Jesus thought each one of us was worth dying for. Amazing, just amazing. Now, as a not-so-random side note here, to me, the words, it is finished, are the most powerful three words in the Bible, the most life-changing words for each of us who are followers of Jesus. 
He paid it all so that we don't have to spend our lives carrying around the weight of our sins, striving for perfection, trying to be a better person, chasing after doing what is right. Instead, we can rest in his finished work on the cross. He didn't come to give us rules and regulations to follow. He gave himself so that we might be free, free to live in the fullness of joy that only he can give. So let's choose to live our lives in gratitude and joy today, my Open Our Bibles Together study friends, because it is finished. As a side note here, if you want to dig into these thoughts about striving, I highly recommend reading When Striving Cease, a book I've been slowly working my way through by Ruth Cho Simmons. Find this link in the show notes to learn more. As we study the Easter passages year after year, we say the words Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection often. We spend a lot of time talking about the details leading up to and including his death. We talk about the stone being rolled away, the angels, the post-resurrection appearances, and so on. But what about the in-between time? What happened between the time Jesus was taken off the cross until he rose again? At around 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday, the Savior of the world died. As believers today, we are blessed to not have experienced that feeling of grief and sadness of seeing him suffer on the cross. We know him as our Savior, who is very much alive. But for approximately 36 hours, Jesus' spirit was gone from his earthly body. Let's take time to consider what these moments would have been like for Jesus' followers. After following him for years, he was suddenly gone. They must have wondered what would happen to them or what to do with all that Jesus had taught them. Where should they go from here? Should they just walk back to their fishing nets, their previous jobs, families, and homes and forget the whole thing? Confusion, hopelessness, despair even. Had it all been for nothing? Consider this perspective of what is often referred to as Holy Saturday or Silent Saturday even. It is the day between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Lifeways Behold Your King study reads, Imagine late on Friday, as the two Marys sat near Jesus' lifeless body, despairing yet devoted, their hopes and dreams crushed. Which do you think was worse, to have to watch it all play out for hours, or to witness the finality of Jesus' death as a stone was rolled to seal his tomb? We know the rest of the story. We know what they would find on that Sunday morning, but they didn't. For all they knew, the one they'd put their hope in was gone. Forever. We too have moments in our own stories that are difficult, painful, and sorrowful. Times when it feels like God's silent. So often waiting is used for preparation and to gain a new perspective. Perhaps your Saturdays of waiting were followed by a Sunday of celebration, just like the Marys experienced. Whatever the case, nothing is wasted with God. The silence has a purpose. My research also indicated that the Saturday following Jesus' crucifixion might be the most unique and overlooked day in the history of the world. Less is written in the Gospels about this day than any other in the scope of this week known as Holy Week. But what makes it so unique is this. It is the only full day in history where the body of the crucified Son of God lay dead and buried in a grave. That Saturday, as his body lay wrapped in linen in a grave, there were many around Jerusalem who sat with uneasy questions about whether or not there would be another chapter in Jesus' story. His uncommon strength, coupled with the supernatural darkness that settled over the land during his crucifixion, set on edge those who wanted him dead, even after they succeeded. A resurrection would only cause people to believe in him more. But then, shouldn't a resurrection cause people to believe in him more? We know that Silent Saturday will end and be met with the best news the world has ever heard. Sunday is coming, my Open Our Bibles Together friends. So as we think of that first Easter Sunday, that resurrection day, I want us to begin with this thought. Try to imagine if someone you love more than anyone else died and was buried and then they appeared to you three days later, alive. How utterly amazing would that be? Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus on the morning he rose from the grave was nothing short of astonishing. 
Even if you think you know this story well, remember we're trying to experience it with a new perspective because this is not just a story. It really happened. I would encourage all of us to stop and read chapter 20 in the book of John verses 1 through 18 and then read it again aloud. If you can, please press pause right now and go read these verses and even let the scene play out in your mind's eye as if it were a movie. I'll wait for you to return, I promise. (laughs) Okay, friends, thanks for taking a moment to read that portion of scripture with fresh eyes with me in the pause to break. Truthfully, to me, this incredible encounter between Jesus and Mary Magdalene seems to show the tenderness and kindness of Jesus. That morning at the tomb, in the middle of her grief at losing him, and all that she and the others thought could have been, the voice she knew so well, the voice she heard teaching and even laughing so very many times before his death, spoke her name, and everything changed. This feels just like one more example of Jesus' heart to see, to love, the one, to meet us in our brokenness, to meet us where we're at. Beautiful, just beautiful. Think about this perspective about Easter Sunday is found in a devotional called God's Work in the Mundane in the She Reads True Study Bible. God must care about the mundane because there seems to be an awful lot of it. Often, God is doing something big in moments that seem small. For instance, in Luke 24, we see God doing the biggest thing he's done since he spoke all of creation into existence. Jesus had been crucified to take the punishment for our sin, then laid in a borrowed tomb. None of that would have mounted to a hill of beans without this found in chapter... 24 verse 6, he is not here, but he has risen. As a fan of pomp and circumstance, I can think of at least a hundred ways I would have announced this news. A parade, a skywriter, a musical number put on by trumpets of heaven. But Jesus took a different approach. He chose obscure people in the middle of mundane moments to be the mouthpiece for this radical news. Death had been defeated once and for all. Jesus could have appeared to Pilate or Herod or the Pharisees and forced them to eat crow. Instead, the news of the resurrection was given first to a group of women whose testimony would be inadmissible or ignored in a court of law. In Luke chapter 24, verse 13, we find two obscure disciples, Cleopas and one who goes unnamed, walking to a little village called Emmaus. Jesus joins them on their walk, but again, refuses to make a flashy entrance. He simply joins the conversation. Think about every mundane moment in your life, every season where it feels like God isn't doing anything. Every time you thought, I'm a nobody, God can't use me, then read these passages again. Jesus announced his resurrection from the dead to an unknown disciple, walking down an unnamed road to an unimportant town. From there, he moved on to a little room filled with 11 disciples. Instead of saying, I'm alive, he said, do you have anything here to eat? See it? Big stuff and the little stuff. Every marketing team in the world would call this a mistake, but Jesus knows how to multiply loaves and fishes. The message he entrusted to nobodies somehow made it to our ears and hearts 2,000 years later. May we learn to see God's hands in the mundane and as we walk on our Emmaus roads. Oh, friends, may we learn to see God's hand in the mundane as we walk our own Emmaus roads. May we talk with others in our lives about what we learn about God, about Jesus as we study his word, what we are discovering and even experiencing as we walk in our faith journeys with Jesus. May we give others and ourselves even the freedom to ask questions. May we learn to see God in the everyday things of life and trust, as the saying goes, that the little things in life are, in fact, the big things after all. So in an effort to bring this episode to a closing point, take a listen to this framework for the life of Jesus from a visual theology guide to the Bible. From the beginning of his life through his death, Jesus worshiped God perfectly from the heart gave his life for others, and pursued God's glory rather than caring about the opinions of other people. 
But Jesus did not come to just perform miracles and teach about the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says that the main reason he came to earth was to die, as in John chapter 12, verse 27, which reads, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. In his death, Jesus is not only being rejected by men, he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In his final breath, Jesus cries out, It is finished. On the cross, Jesus was not merely dying the death of a sinner. He was dying for the sins of the people, being separated from God and paying the full price for their sins in their place. When Jesus took his final breath and gave up his spirit, it felt like the disciples had suffered their worst defeat. Their beloved teacher had spent years proclaiming that he was the promised Savior who had come to rescue them and the promised King who had come to reign over a new kingdom. But how could he be a Savior when he could not save himself? And how could the King reign over an eternal kingdom when he had been defeated? On the first day of the next week, two women who were Jesus' disciples went to visit his tomb. But instead of finding a stone covering the tomb, they were shocked to find it open and an angel sitting on the stone. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Soon, Jesus appears to the women, and eventually to all his disciples, in a resurrected body, turning their sorrow over his death to inexpressible joy. Just as he had promised, Jesus had carried their sins and defeated death. All their fear and despair turned into joy and purpose. Their lives would never be the same again. Jesus is alive and that changes everything, for them and for us. Just as he had promised, just as God had promised in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, Easter was the plan before the foundation of the world. Truthfully, I so wish we had some more time in this episode to journey back to the Old Testament to understand some of the history and prophecy that laid the groundwork for Jesus' appearance as our Messiah. Lifeway's Behold Your King study says it this way, God spoke many beautiful Old Testament words of love that found their echo and fulfillment in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Though it sounds strange to our earthly ears, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to save us from our sin wasn't a contingency plan that God was forced to put into place when Adam and Eve let us down in the Garden of Eden. In fact, that dark day in Golgotha was the plan all along. When the Lord was walking in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, he came seeking those who were now lost. This loving act demonstrates how God loved us and had a plan in place for salvation. God came to seek and save humanity right from the start. His plan culminated in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The separation that started in the garden was only able to be closed by the offspring of the woman, Jesus, the God-man, born of a virgin. What was a shadow in Genesis 3 became the light of the world in Christ. Because of his death on the cross, we can be made alive again and experience eternal life. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is often called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel proclamation. The hostility between Eve and her enemy, the serpent, later identified in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 as Satan, is representative of the spiritual battle that continues to this day. Because of Adam's sin, we are all enslaved to sin and dead in our sins. We carry out the inclinations of our flesh and are by nature children under wrath, as referenced in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In other words, we have no hope. But in Genesis chapter 3, God told the serpent there was one coming from the woman's offspring who would strike his head. To strike or crush the head of a snake is a picture of fatal and final destruction. That's what happened through Christ's coming to be our perfect sacrifice. Jesus has defeated death and Satan. Even in physical death, we can have spiritual victory 
and eternal life because of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, because of Easter. Early in Scripture, we witness God masterfully sowing seeds of hope and redemption, casting shadows of the Messiah who would come. Admittedly, we have the benefit of reading the Old Testament from this side of the cross, since we know who Jesus is and was, how he loved, how he acted, how he spoke to his followers and led with a servant's heart. It is much easier for us to see the God-shaped holes in the Messianic references found throughout the Old Testament. But our brothers and sisters who lived in the Old Testament world didn't have such a luxury. They received these prophecies with great hope, but were only able to see them in part, unsure of what they were really being shown. Almost immediately after Adam and Eve chose to do what was right in their own eyes, we hear God promise a Redeemer to come, one who would crush the serpent's head. God points to the coming of Jesus in the Exodus story, the deliverance with the Passover, and the sacrifice of a lamb. And he tells us of a coming Messiah who will appear as a servant, humbling suffering to help us. As we look backward from the cross, I can't help but be struck by the care and intentionality of God in crafting a rescue for us, his wayward and helpless people, from the beginning. He illuminated each step of the way, gradually giving us shadows of Jesus along with grace and understanding bit by bit, pulling our hearts out of despair and lifting them with hope time and again. And he's still doing it. Let's put ourselves in the sandals of our Old Testament brothers and sisters and marvel at the hope and light the coming Messiah brought with him. Promise keeper, yet another perspective for us to consider as we read through the Easter story, to not only keep in mind the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of those living alongside him that week, but also those who lived in the Old Testament times, who were hearing the promises of a coming Messiah and waiting in hopeful anticipation for his arrival. Wow. And listen, just listen to this. This is so good, everybody. Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7 reads, He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Did you hear that, my friends? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. In reference to these verses, the New Living Life Application Study Bible asks and answers this question. Why is the resurrection so important? Number one, because Christ was raised from the dead, we know that the kingdom of heaven has broken into earth's history. Our world is now headed for redemption, not disaster. God's mighty power is now at work destroying sin, creating new lives, and preparing us for Jesus' second coming. Number two, because of the resurrection, we know that death has been conquered and we too will be raised from the dead to live forever with Christ. Number three, the resurrection gives authority to the church's witness in the world. Look at the early evangelistic sermons found in the book of Acts. The apostles' most important message was a proclamation that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. Number four, the resurrection gives meaning to the church's sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Through communion, we break bread with our risen Lord who comes in the power to save us. Number five, the resurrection helps us find meaning even in great tragedy. No matter what happens to us as we walk with the Lord, the resurrection gives us hope for the future. Number six, the resurrection assures us that Christ is alive and ruling his kingdom. He is not a legend. He is alive and real. And number seven, God's power that brought Jesus back from the dead is available to us so that we can live for him in an evil world. Oh my. There is so much that we simply just do not have time to dig into together from Holy Week, but I am hopeful that the time we have spent together has helped you see the events of this week with fresh eyes and a teachable heart. You know, like I asked us to pray at the beginning of today's episode, please know that 
will continue to be my prayer as you continue to dig into all four Gospels to read and study all the details of this week leading up to Easter in your own study time. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, I lift up all of my friends listening to this podcast right now. Please help us prepare our hearts for Easter to fully praise and worship you for all you have done. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for defeating death and raising from the grave on the third day. Thank you, Father God, for sending Jesus to die an excruciating, brutal death so that we may have life with you. We are so humbled to recognize that your son Jesus thought each one of us was worth dying for, to die for us while we were still sinners. May we not let this season pass by without spending time with you in praise and worship for doing what we could not do for ourselves, rescue and redemption and restoration of our relationship with you. You made a promise all the way back in the beginning in Genesis 3, and you fulfilled it. Our promise keeper, please help us to tell others about how you came to save them too, to share the good news of the resurrection that brings us all new life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, could you do me a favor and share this episode with three or more people? And please go to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review, because that is the absolute best way to help others find out about this show. And if you have not done so already, this would most definitely be the time to go check out the show notes because they are chock full of all kinds of extra goodness for this Holy Week episode, including a playlist of some of my most favorite Easter worship songs, specific scripture references for digging into each day of the Holy Week on your own, and so much more. Just swipe up on your podcast app screen to see them below, but if you can't find them there, they're always available at mfaring.com in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.